On Guido Talks this week, we discuss Rishi's new big taxing budget. Nicola Sturgeon gets into some hot water and lots of MPs decide to buy airpods on the taxpayer. All that and more this week on Guido Talks. Stick about. Hello and welcome to another episode of Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines and reporter Christian Calgi. If you're watching on YouTube as opposed to listening on where you normally get your podcasts, remember you can look in the description below for the little timestamps to take you to whatever topic discussion you fancy. Otherwise, just stick about through the whole thing. Let's get stuck in straight away to what was the dominant story this week, which was, of course, the Chancellor's long-trailed budget, which he finally stood up on Wednesday afternoon to deliver. What did you make of it, Paul? I thought it was the worst budget delivered by a Tory Chancellor since 1993. If you remember, or you won't remember if you weren't born then, in 1992, the Tories lost their reputation for uh, financial competence on the economy with the ERM crisis where uh, the then uh, Prime Minister John Major tried to shadow the ERM in Deutschmark as it was. It led to White Wednesday, Sterling crashing out of the system and the Tories losing their uh, reputation for financial competence. This uh, budget sees the Tories lose their reputation as a low tax party with low tax policies. It's got to be something very strange where Keir Starmer's Labour Party is aggressively anti-tax compared to uh, the current Rishi regime and uh, he's put off the corporation tax rises till um, two years. But I've heard uh, from my sources that actually he wanted to introduce them this year and only Boris stopped him uh, going ahead with that and said the politics of it was terrible, whatever he thought. And there is talk of people considering Rishi to be more like a, uh, a bean counter with a good social media game. It's, this, is, this is going to prove to be a watershed uh, uh, budget in the sense that already last year with the pandemic, and we can excuse it to some extent because of the pandemic, the Tories found the magic money tree and started rattling it. Now they're outflanking Labour on tax increases. That doesn't make political sense in the long run. In, when it comes to the election, whenever it comes, the Tories simply will not be able to say Labour would be worse than the economy. Labour would put up taxes because the Tories have done all that. It was interesting actually listening to what the Chancellor had to say Thursday morning on the Radio 4's Today programme, um, where he was asked four times in a row if he disagreed with his previous statements that sometimes cutting taxes can lead to more revenue, and whether he was making a complete step change from Tory tax orthodoxy. Because since 1975 at least the Conservative Party has been a party saying that lower taxes spur more growth and that can actually bring more revenue in as well as uh, making it a, a, a better system for, for wealth creation 
overall. And this idea that we're whacking corporation tax up now to 25%, which is above the global average, which is 1% lower, um, it's something that the Conservatives campaigned against. And I think we've got a little clip of Rishi Sunak back when he was a lowly backbench MP and what he had to say about raising corporation tax then. I thank Shadow Chancellor. You mentioned the election campaign. In that campaign, the opposition uh, suggested that they would raise the rate of corporation tax in this country, a move that would damage jobs and growth. Could he confirm for the House now, is that still Labour's policy, or will you start backing British businesses? It is a tax on jobs, and he knows damn well it is. But overall, taxes now have gone back to a level last seen since the 1960s. And in fact, the last chance to put up corporation tax in 1974, I think, was Dennis Healy. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a good situation. I don't think it's on the Tories to blame it entirely on the pandemic, because the situation was pretty bad even before the pandemic happened. And last year, we pointed out that the tax burden had taken us up to the 1970s. I saw a note from the Taxpayers Alliance saying that if you look at the sustained tax burden, besides the spike in the 60s, actually we're now back to the level it was post the second world war when we were you know the streets were full of rubble and we were rebuilding the country it is an extraordinary burden to be paid by the next generation and there was one little note of light in the speech that some of the think tanks picked up on and this is what rishi sunak has taken to be calling um, a super deduction this idea that you can write off investment off the back of your um, off the back of your corporation tax, you can you can deduct it from your corporation tax receipts by a, a note of about a hundred and thirty percent. Now that super deduction is to term make up for the the spike in corporation tax to sort of cancel it out for those first two years for firms that invest quickly. Um, and this is something that a lot of think tanks have been calling for for a long time, particularly the ASI, the Adam Smith Institute, ran a campaign against it last year, calling it the factory tax, this idea that we're very punitive in this country if you want to invest in machinery, for example. Now, getting, being able to have full expensing for machinery and the like is going to be a benefit. The problem in the budget is, it, is that falls away after two years. And I think there'll be a lot of Conservative MPs, particularly Conservative MPs who want manufacturing in their constituencies and all that sort of thing, who will be saying to the Chancellor, we've got to extend this beyond just two years or find a way to continue this sort of full expensing so that your corporation tax hikes don't hit so hard. Well, you would have thought, thought the logic of it would be that it would go to 100% uh, after, when, the, when the new rate comes in. I saw Paul Goodman at Conservative Home also thought that it was perhaps a, a ruse and that these tax hikes, uh, and don't forget we're talking about income tax thresholds uh, being frozen, which effectively means that your net take-home pay goes down as inflation uh, rises, and inflation is rising. So it, Paul Goodman at Conservative Home had this theory that maybe it was a sign that in two years' time they wouldn't implement these uh, tax hikes and they would go for a quick election. That coupled with the ending of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. It, it could be true, I don't think so, because the situation is not going to be any better in 23 and the logic of the situation will not change. And if your belief is that putting out taxes brings in more revenue, why would you cut them? I thought the 
reaction in the press versus the wider country was very interesting because across the board, uh, I'd say the majority of the Tory press actually headlined with the tax rises and they were very much going uh, in heavy on, on the, you know, the unprecedented levels uh, of tax rises that we saw. Yet actually on the individual issues, the, the policies polled very well. And actually there's a lot to be said that uh, whilst Rishi spent a very long time in the trail up to the budget from his Sunday show appearances last weekend, uh, saying he was going to level with the country, he was going to you know, put the facts across, this was going to be a tough budget. A lot of it seems to have been driven by politics rather than economics, especially politics uh, directed towards the new voters in the red wall seats. And there was a lot, uh, by the way, of sort of showy pieces uh, directed at especially the northeast. You've got the Treasury moving to Darlington. You've got uh, a number of new free ports in Humberside, in Teesside. Uh, uh, those things will go down very well. But one does suspect that if these taxes start coming in in 2023, if they're not scrapped prematurely, uh, that those will feed through to people's pockets. And at that point, these uh, policies, uh, the reality of these policies uh, will become a hell of a lot more unpopular. Yeah, it's all very well and good to say we're just going to tax corporations as if that doesn't affect people in how much they're paid in wages or in what they can buy in the shops in prices. Taxing corporations is taxing people. It's not some ethereal thing that, that doesn't affect real people's lives and real families. Um, and while it might sound nice and it might pull well in the short term, in the long term, people feel it. Uh, uh, George Osborne had an almost sort of addiction I think, for, for all his faults, to trying to lower corporation tax to a really competitive level. Actually, if he wanted to secure that legacy, he, he could have actually done with changing the name of it. Because as you say, it really is one of these misnomers in the minds of the public that all it will do is, is hit Amazon and, you know, and not, uh, not end up feeding through to jobs and to consumers. Meanwhile, north of the border, the continued salmon sturgeon scandal rumbled on. In fact, it was one of the most irritating news days of modern history on Wednesday, <laughs> because not only was Rishi standing up in the House of Commons delivering his budget and everyone was sort of trying to follow that, but simultaneously Nicola Sturgeon was before the Salmond Inquiry Committee in the Scottish Parliament. Now, some cynical people might say that she timed that incredibly well, trying to make sure that uh, more journalist size weren't looking at that than absolutely needed to be. Because there were some real moments where she came under some enormous pressure, particularly with regard to who she was contradicting and whether she was contradicting people and whether she supported evidence that was before the committee or not, and whether evidence should have been brought forward earlier to the committee when it looked like her government was withholding it. There were some real moments there, particularly from Jackie Bailey, a, a Labour uh, member of the Scottish Parliament, who really put her under some pressure. And during one moment, um, a, a different MSP, one of the uh, conveners of the committee, had to remind her that Alex Salmond wasn't on trial. He's been found innocent, rightly or wrongly, by a legal trial. This commission is looking into the, the, the Sturgeon government and Nicola Sturgeon's own actions in terms of how she responded to Alex Salmond. He's not on trial, she is. Great behaviour on the part of Alex Salmond and 
And that is just... It's generally, it was, it um, was five SNP ministers. And can I remind you, Alex Salmond is a key witness to this inquiry. He's not under trial. Your actions are. And if you could focus on that, Sorry, uh, that would be much appreciated. My apologies. I was saying I hadn't heard anything, so I was, wasn't putting him on trial for that. So Sturgeon appeared in front of the committee on Wednesday. It followed an incredibly tumultuous Tuesday evening where the, where the breaking news rolled on well into the, uh, the late of the day, uh, when the, Conservative, uh, the Conservatives in Scotland uh, formally called for Sturgeon to resign and have now said they will be tabling a vote of no confidence in Sturgeon, which was an incredible sort of ramping up of tensions because it was only that morning that they'd been focusing their efforts on threatening a vote of no confidence in the deputy First Minister to try and get these further legal papers released. Uh, and these papers were released. And one of the most damning findings was the Scottish government's uh, legal officers really saying uh, that they should not proceed with the case because it is a waste of time. Uh, so this then led to this uh, threat by the Scottish Conservatives. Sturgeon was under trial for uh, well, eight hours, really, um, um, a massively long amount of time. And the story was uh, almost a masterclass in both avoiding questions uh, and convenient memory loss all over the place in terms of her defence. And that is really what the Scottish Tories are going to be focusing in on and picking on. Uh, and the, the desire now is for the Scottish Tories to try and win over the Scottish Green MSPs, who really are now the deciding factor here, and whether they can convince them that the state of Scottish politics is so bad as to put their party or their desires for independence to one side and do what is right to take down Nicola Sturgeon. I got the sense that there was no killer blow landed and that uh, inevitably the Scottish National Party will do a behind-the-scenes deal with the Greens and she will be home scot-free, to coin a phrase. <laughs> this is, the, this is the, the nub of it, isn't it? There's so many complicated issues in this entire saga. Um, there's, there's actually a dossier that was produced by the Scottish Conservatives this week that showed, I think, 16 times they say that Nicola Sturgeon has broken the ministerial code or that her, her close circle has done so. And there's, there's just so much stuff here, it's quite hard to pin down one specific killer blow. So the it's question not, it's is not just the not Tories so saying that. Salmon said that, didn't he? I think we've got a clip of that. The First Minister has broken the ministerial code. Should she resign? Not for me. I, I believe the First Minister has broken the ministerial code, but the, the, you know, that is a finding that can be discussed, at least by this committee, uh, by Mr James Hamilton. It's not the case that every minister who breaks the ministerial code resigns. I mean, your own uh, party would have a, an example of that relatively recently. Uh, it depends on what is found and, and the, the degree by which the ministerial code has been broken. I've got no doubt that Nicola has broken the ministerial code, but it's not for me to suggest the what the consequences should be. It's for the, the people who are judging that, including this committee. Okay. Thank you, Commissioner. Now, of course, let's be real. Nicola Sturgeon is not going to stop being First Minister before the election. But the question is, how much dirt that has been dug up by this committee uh, cuts through to the people of Scotland? How much do the people of Scotland think 
twice about electing a government who has withheld so much evidence, who's censored so much evidence, who's um, blurred the lines between the judiciary and the government and the executive and parliament and the legislature. Uh, how much do the people of Scotland want this sort of banana republic style government with all the cover-ups and the lies and the misleading of parliament and the breaking of the ministerial code that's just sort of become second nature for those in power? The question isn't whether Nicola Sturgeon gets removed by members of the Scottish Parliament in the next week or two. The question is what do the people of Scotland have to say in the next month or two? Eagle-eyed viewers may spot that I have a uh, new headphone for this Zoom call. For technical reasons, we're using Zoom again. Uh, sorry about that. You can see here that it cost me a whole €3.69, um, which is a lot less than some of our MPs have been charging us, the public, for their AirPods. I think you'll find that Hancock charged, was it 159 for his AirPods? Andrew Rayner got in for a personalised pair of AirPods for 249 quid. In fact, two, she then lost them and got a second set. So we paid five, nearly 500 quid for her to have fancy uh, Apple AirPods. Now, I don't think that is an essential expense for the taxpayers. I don't think it's absolutely necessary at all. It's perfectly adequate to have bog standard three quid headphones. Why do you need them? Particularly when you're going to lose them because they've got no wire on them. It is <laughs> remarkable how much uh, MPs have sort of got away with in the last year. They had this sort of boost to the budget that they can claim technological things for because everyone's working from home. They sort of had a, a boost to buy laptops or whatever. And so many of them seem to have splurged it on headphones. Matt Hancock was such an interesting example because he initially claimed for some AirPods back in January. And then just, just a couple of months later, he claimed for a whole new set of he headphones because clearly the implication there is that he lost his AirPods. And then only a couple of months later, he had to get an adapter for another set of headphones uh, and he claimed that on expenses as well so how regularly he is losing his airpods or headphones is is a real concern and i think that potentially the person in charge of the nhs uh, might need to have a bit more uh, concern over their own personal artifacts so this uh, this came about after a, a sun article which focused on Rainer on the Sunday night and we sort of picked up and ran with it on Monday morning uh, starting with the Hancock story. We then continued uh, with it throughout the day. Uh, we found the shadow, a member of the shadow cabinet, the ridiculous sounding shadow minister for peace and disarmament, uh, Fabian Hamilton, uh, is the godfather of this because he has managed to spend four grand on Apple product in about two months. Uh, he bought a top-of-the-range iPhone, a top-of-the-range iPad, and a top-of-the-range MacBook. Um, and by the way, he has a history of this, because he, uh, in 2009, spent 14 grand on 13 Apple computers in four years, which, even by my standards, is a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, we then found Peter Bone also bought AirPods back in 2019. The Telegraph, who uh, were also investigating this story, uh, got to the figure of 40,000 pounds in a year spent by MPs on Apple product. Uh, most incredibly of all, I think, has to go to Barry Gardner, who managed to spend £1,700 on an iPad. And it took, it, it took the combination of me and uh, Harry York at The Telegraph to try and work out exactly 
how he'd managed to spend this much and it was maxed out on everything. Uh, this was a professional iPad that should be used by video editors and software engineers. Uh, this guy is probably at best reading a couple of PDFs on it a day and managed to spend £1,700 uh, on an iPad. Uh, genuinely incredible i couldn't spend this much expenses if you if you ask me to instantly viewers and listeners should know that when mps lose their seats they are allowed to keep all their kits and it has not been uh unusual for mps who are retiring to order a whole load of kits including photography equipment you know as a going away present to themselves when they retire and, and all on the taxpayer. That's what we really have to drive home here. This is money that is being taken away from hardworking people in jobs that pay a hell of a lot less than MPs get. And who, if they work for a large company where they're lucky enough to be given um, a, a company laptop, let's be real about the restrictions that that laptop faces. It's, it's not theirs. Very, very often they'll have to sort of hand it back when they leave the job or, or not be able to use it for personal uh, means. Whereas MPs have absolutely no restrictions over what they do with their tech that they get off the taxpayer on top of their enormous taxpayer funded salaries. It's a scandal. Exactly. And one of the key points of the expenses scandal, of course, this isn't flipping houses and paying with, for mortgages and duck houses and all that. It's quite technical and, and niche. But the key point was that they're on 80k a year. Ordinary people out in the country, they take home their wage. They have to pay for their luxuries, for their food, for their travel out of that wage. Now, MPs already get a huge amount of help with second flats and travel to and from a constituency. If they need headphones, fine, but they do not need £250 AirPod Pros uh, paid for by the taxpayer. They can do with Paul's €3.50 headphones, and if they want to get better ones, they can pay for them out of their own pocket. Penny Mordant's had an interesting week and has been in our, has been in our spotlight throughout the week. Uh, on Friday, uh, the government finally conceded to describing pregnant people as mothers, expectant mothers and women. And this was, of course, because the Attorney General, Suella Braverman, uh, is going on maternity leave. And at present, there's no law to allow a female minister to take maternity leave. So this has been going through the House of Lords. The House of Lords finally forced the government into a U-turn to get these amendments uh, through, stop using this gender-neutral language. Uh, and it was during the uh, government's accepting of these House of Lords amendments that uh, Penny Mordaunt made quite an interesting statement on transgender policy, Paul. Can we see that now? But let me say in proposing them from this dispatch box that trans men are men, trans women are women, and great care has been taken in the drafting of uh, and the accepting of these amendments to ensure that that message it has been got across. So she very carefully used that language, which is that trans men are men and trans women are women, uh, because that is the uh, uh, rallying call of all oh, the wokerati, and I have to say I include Tom in this as well. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not the official position of the government. It's, and I had to double check that because you never know, it could have changed, but I, I put in a call and they said, no, that is not the official position. And in fact, off the record, they hinted that combining this 
with her recent meeting with the Muslim Council of Britain, a organization that is too radical for the government to meet with and has been boycotted by successive Tory administrations going back a decade. Uh, she's basically uh, signing her resignation statement, so to speak, and is going out as a sort of as a progressive martyr. I think I think it's <laughs> quite quite interesting that they are tolerating it, and it's kind of an open secret that she's going in the reshuffle, and this is her way of saying <laughs> to everyone <laughs> involved. <laughs> well, if she does go in the reshuffle, she's already got a second job lined up. Uh, because we had a, a reader get in contact with us while visiting uh, GP services in France uh, and spotted a poster telling residents to get HPV screening. Oddly, the poster included uh, <laughs> the model of uh, Penny Mordaunt's parliamentary portrait. Uh, it's, uh, I just found this all very uh, amusing, telling the, the UK Paymaster General accidentally telling residents of Normandy to, to get a test once every uh, three years. I suppose those images must be royalty free. They're put up on the Parliament website. So I wonder how many more um, obscure countries around the world have just decided to take random MPs to use to advertise their product or service. It sounds like an absolute bargain to save on hiring real models. I seem to remember bizarrely a picture of Douglas Alexander being on an Indian tailor's uh, sign outside, sort of badly photoshopped. And I never saw Douglas Alexander as a great wearer of a suit, but that happened quite a few years ago. I might try and dig that out. Sadiq Khan launched his mayoral re-election campaign on Thursday. Uh, the Tories were, of course, briefing against it. They released this policy audit claiming he'd broken 56% of his promises. I'm not going to say that got cut through, but what did get cut through were the events at the Sadiq Khan launch, in which a, uh, a group of protesters angry about low-traffic neighbourhoods uh, gate-crashed the event and forced Sadiq uh, to uh, find shelter in a, in a cafe that he had launched it by. Uh, it was a complete farce. He had to... I think in the end he was, he was holed up in that cafe for an hour uh, and then managed to uh, escape, run past the protesters and, and jump into a car. One thing we did note uh, is that, of course, you're not allowed to sit or stand for a prolonged period inside a cafe. Uh, and also, I've just seen that the photographer, Stephen Russo, has posted a, a photograph of Sadiq Khan uh, grabbing his, his coffee inside without a face mask. So there were a number of issues, uh, none of which Sadiq's multi, you know, increasingly large PR team uh, will be particularly happy about. Of course, it depends on the day of the week whether he was being a hypocrite or not. If he would have st stayed beyond 10pm rather than just an hour in that, um, I think on Tuesday he was in favour of the curfew, but then on Wednesday he was against the curfew, and, and before then he wanted the government to introduce it, but then he criticised the effects of it. Um, he's been a real, real consistent man on, on the issue of coronavirus restrictions in London. It... <laughs> Well, enough about parochial issues in just one city uh, in the UK, in London. Let's, let's look broader and look at parochial issues in just one little corner of the planet. This is, of course, Europe, just those 27 countries that happen to be uh, across the channel from us. Um, 
something to do with Brexit this week came up when, when David Cameron was, in, was appearing before the Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, uh, of course, uh, in front of MPs and Lords. And he was being questioned on sort of strategic thinking, on, um, on how he ran his 10 years in number 10. And a Labour MP from Bristol decided to ask him about the EU referendum and sort of get in a snarky comment about wasn't that great strategic thinking. David Cameron actually, and perhaps surprisingly for people listening to this podcast, uh, thoroughly defended holding an EU referendum, says it was the right thing to do, said the issue of Europe was inescapable and was going to come to a head. Let's have a listen at what he had to say. Well, the Brexit referendum was um, discussed and called um, in uh, 2013. Um, so two years before the general election, three years before uh, the referendum itself. Um, and so it's not as if this was something that was suddenly uh, sort of thought up and popped into a manifesto. Uh, this was something people might disagree, say that it was a, a, a bad idea or whatever. But, you know, it was properly thought through, discussed, argued, debated, voted on in Parliament, put in a manifesto. A government was formed on the basis of that manifesto. Um, and so it's not something I sometimes read about it as if people think it was a sort of afterthought. Um, as I say, I think it was January 2013, the announcement of uh, holding a referendum before the halfway point of the next parliament was made. Um, and unlike some policies, that wasn't popped into a manifesto at the last minute. That was a good two years before the election. Is it my imagination or is... Dave increasingly popping up. You know, they say it's a, a rare intervention by David Cameron. They're becoming a lot more frequent. And he hasn't even got a book out. It's going to be like Tony Blair. I mean, Tony Blair's never off our screens or making interventions and suggesting fantastic ideas for people. I, I think I think Dave's got bored, hasn't he? And now he wants to uh, he wants to put his oar in. At least Tony Blair had something to do. At least he was gallivanting around the world, earning millions by advising. Regimes. I'm not sure that David Cameron's doing anything other than sitting in his ah, million-pound shed. Ah, you, uh, you're, not, you're not reading the financial pages because he was an advisor to Greensill, the German bank that's just gone bust. <laughs> <laughs> I, Sorry, I'm, no, in the, I'm in the tiny minority of people who still really likes David Cameron and appreciates his uh, insight whenever he does pop up. And I think... As Brexiteers, you've always got to give him credit for holding the referendum. And it's become this myth amongst the left and, and Remainers that it was just a way of managing the Conservative Party. And actually, if he's out there pointing out that there was this desire amongst the vast majority of the country, and there were many issues to put to bed, and he held it and he doesn't regret it, then great on him. And actually, to be fair, listening to what Rishi Sunak has been saying this week, it's making me even George Osborne, who uh, objectively is not from the right of the Conservative Party, but my God, compared to the last couple of budgets, uh, the coalition years of the Lib Dem Tory coalition were fiscally far more sound than anything we're seeing today. Do you know, do you know what? Uh, he'll laugh if I leave his sisters. He always just goes, I never gave him credit for anything. He's now my second favourite Tory Chancellor of the time. <laughs> After Nigel Lawson, George Osborne, I now think did quite a good job. <laughs> it's been quite an odd sort of walk down memory lane this week. It's been like a political version of this was your life for the Tory party because we've had all sorts of people 
coming out of the woodwork. We had David Cameron at a select committee. We've had George Osborne on tax. We've had Philip Hammond making an appearance out of absolutely you know, nowhere. Uh, William Hague came out in favour of tax rises. It's been, uh, everyone's been put throwing their pennies of thoughts into the whole discourse know, this week. Do you know what was really irritating about William Hague's uh, telegram <laughs> this week? He tried to justify raising taxes off the back of a budget that Pitt the Younger put forward in the late (laughs) 1780s. No, in the late 1790s. However, three days before, in that very same paper, I had written an article um, saying that we should follow what Pitt the Younger did ten years before then, when he cut duties (laughs) on alcohol, on tea, on tobacco and everything, and he sliced down those duties and basically eliminated smuggling and rose the revenues. Um, And yet William Hague has found a different budget where he, he happened to raise some taxes that was scurrilous well William Hague has of course written a biography on William Pitt and perhaps the royalties are drying up so he needed to elbow him into uh, an article this week if we return briefly to the budget to, to finish on Rishi had a very dry uh, budget and no jokes at all and we do know he can he can give as good as he gets on that front Keir Starmer tried Uh, Unfortunately, the COVID social distancing means that any politician trying jokes in the Commons at the moment uh, falls flat on their face. Uh, It was was Brent-esque, and we put together a viewer discretion uh, compilation of Keir Starmer's worst jokes at the budget. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. After 11 months in this job, it's nice, finally, to be standing opposite the person actually making decisions in this government. I'm sure this budget will look better on Instagram. In fact, this week's PR video cost the taxpayer so much I was half expecting to see a line in the OBR forecast for it. (laughs) It's clear the Chancellor is now betting on a recovery fuelled by a consumer spending blitz. In fairness, fairness, if my next door neighbour was spending tens of thousands of pounds redecorating their flat, I'd probably do the same. (laughs) Yet the Chancellor focused today on returning to subsidising 95% of mortgages. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've heard that somewhere before. I've heard that somewhere before. Maybe it was because the Prime Minister announced it five months ago in his conference speech. No, I don't think anybody heard that. (laughs) I remember now, I remember now, it's what Osborne and Cameron came up with in 2013. This budget also fell far short of what was needed to support the self-employed and freelancers, unless, of course, you're one of the Chancellor's photographers. I am cringing from hearing him (laughs) rustle rustle his papers to a completely empty chamber, and even the people that were there weren't even politely tittering. That was a flop, leaving aside any of the content, the delivery was poor. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's Guido Talk. So thank you once again for sticking with us for this whole episode. Remember, you can catch us on YouTube as a video podcast or wherever you normally get your podcasts as an audio podcast. That's uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. Um, Remember that we'll be back again next Friday. Uh, Thanks again for sticking about and we'll see you next week.